Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to God is Gray, the podcast. Although I, as a Christian, believe that God resides in absolute truth, in black and white, we as people are stuck here on planet Earth contending with the gray. In church, gray areas often cause dissension, anger, and even hate. But on this platform, I welcome open dialogue, variety of opinion, and differing belief systems. God is Gray is meant to teach, inform, and simply trade stories with kindness, love, and mutual respect. If you have a story or perspective to share, please reach me, Brenda Marie Davies, at GodIsGrayXO at gmail.com. To support the cause and be a part of our community, donate to patreon.com slash gray. Now, on to the episode. Hi, beautiful people. Today we are talking to Alice Gretchen. She is an actress, writer of Wayward, and founder of Dare to Doubt. Hi, Alice. Hi, Brenda. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. We are so excited to be having this conversation because we have both finished reading each other's books. (laughs) And I think my first question is, which maybe I know from reading your book, but did you always want to be a writer? Because I, I see what's similar in both of us is that it seems like it was always a catharsis for you. And that's how I always describe it. Like there's so many moments in Wayward where you're sneaking off to journal and kind of process everything that's happening to you. But did you ever know or suspect you would have a novel that you wrote in your hands? No, I never. So yes, I've always been a writer. Um, as you mentioned, like I've, I journaled so much and those journals came in so handy as I'm sure anyone can imagine as I was writing wayward because they were such great reference points about like, where was my family living at this time? And, um, you know, oh, wow, this conversation I have with this friend that I'd totally forgotten about. So it was, it was really helpful. So in that sense, I've always been a writer. I always knew writing was something that, um, I would carry with me into my adult life and I've blogged off and on over the past decade or so, but I never thought I'd publish a memoir until several years ago. Um, I was working on a cookbook. My book started off as a cookbook of North American regional recipes inspired by places that my family lived during our, our nomadic homeless years. And um, I had these little anecdotal stories that would accompany each recipe. And then a writing teacher at a workshop I took at UCLA uh, very kindly told me that the recipes were getting in the way and that perhaps I should consider writing a full-on memoir because I had a, a story to tell. And she was so right. She was like, she was like, you can write a cookbook later if you want, but I just feel like I need to let you know. <laughs> so that's, awesome. that's how, that's how this came about. I never imagined I'd be um, a memoirist, but here, here I am. What about you? Did you always know that like you, that writing would be a part of your adult life or your future or like how how did writing fit in for you besides journaling up to this point you know we will definitely get into more of this later because what's interesting is i did have these prophetic moments in church when i was like really immersed in it and i just remember ever since i was a little girl my dad always knew my dad was always mm. like you're going to be in this bookstore you're going to be in this barnes and noble which is why when i got the call that it got in barnes and noble i was just like over the moon Yay. yeah cuz i was just like oh my dad he's going to be so proud but Aww. um <laughs> 
he was the first one to kind of be like this, this, this. And I always wanted to be an actress and I was, and I still am. I can still be hired if anyone is looking, but like, <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> yeah. It's just, yeah, it's freaking exhausting and it's not easy. And it's as hard as everybody tells you that it's going to be. But, um, in the midst of all of those journeys, I was always, always writing. And then in this prophetic experience at church, a woman was telling me that I was going to be a writer one day. And I remember being offended by it. Cause I was like, no, I'm going to be a famous movie star. And she was like, no, if I see a writer and here we are. <laughs> oh, wow. That's amazing. You know, I, I remember having lunch with my dad a few years ago and he, I can't remember how this even came about, but somehow it was like, um, I'd asked him like, what did you think I'd grow up to be? Like, I was curious. And he's like, I always thought you'd be an investigative journalist. And I thought it was so oddly specific. And I'd never heard this from my dad or anything like it before. And in a way, it is sort of investigative journaling that I do with, with my blogs and even to, to a degree with Wayward, even though it's very much memoir, like especially towards the end where I get a little bit neuroscience-y, it is a little bit like investigating what's actually going on during a mystical experience, like being slain by the spirit, for instance. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yes. Let's get into all of this because I'm really fascinated. I don't, it's not a secret that you have landed in atheism, correct? And yeah. Reluctantly. That, yeah, I was going to say, what does it feel like to come to terms with that inside of yourself? What kind of struggle, hate to go to a cliche Christian word, but you know, what kind <laughs> of good. inward journey did you have with that? And because I, I will admit that it has always been a fear of mine. I've always been terrified of losing faith for all the reasons that you outline in the book so beautifully, all of the anxiety you're given, the threats of hell, all of it, the loss of your family. Like there's so many threats inside of the idea that, oh my gosh, what if I one day come to terms with the fact that I don't believe any of this? Hmm. Yes, that was, um, that is definitely something that I uh, expound upon quite quite a bit throughout my book. I think so. One of the things that stood out to me, and forgive me if I bounce around a little bit, um, but one of the things that stood out to me in reading your book uh, that helped me understand this different sort of for myself, actually, um, was you had a line in there about how you'd always felt some sort of connection to uh, I believe you use the term like a d divine divinity. Um, yeah. Yeah. Divinity. Mm -hmm. And uh, I never had that. Like even, even when I was a believer, um, I never felt a connection to God or anything that I would have called God, you know, like uh, I remember um, when I, so I left evangelicalism when I was 17, after I broke off this arranged betrothal, that was the result of purity culture, which we could get into that later. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> that's, when I, that's when I broke up with evangelical Christianity. And for the next three years, I, I very sincerely explored progressive Christianity. I wouldn't have called it by that name back then. Now mm -hmm. I, I know there's these terms like liberal Christianity and um, progressive Christianity. And basically what that meant to me, and I understand these, all of these things mean something different to everyone. Um, what that meant to me was I was really trying to believe in a God that was far more about love, grace, and acceptance than fear, rules, and threat. And uh, because that's what the evangelical God came to mean to me, it was, it was a God to be feared and to be obeyed. Um, with very high consequences if, if you veer off that path. So in trying to explore a more loving, forgiving, grace-filled God, uh, 
I still didn't feel him or her or them or whatever, whatever divinity is, or the way I've heard other people use it. I never felt some connection to something bigger than myself or some sense of, um, I, th I think you describe at, at one point feeling Jesus's presence. Like I never felt that any, any presence. Um, and I always thought that it was because there was something wrong with me mm. that I was defective or that like I had some sin that I hadn't repented for that I wasn't even aware of that was blocking me from feeling God or the Holy Spirit. And um, when I finally gave God a test, uh, which I write about in my book, I asked him <laughs> to knock over a jar of cinnamon. Um, and for those who might be wondering, like, don't test God. Of course, he's not going to knock over a jar of cinnamon for you. This dude turned people into pillars of salt to make his presence known. So I didn't think I was asking that much. Um, and I was so sincere. I was not testing God from the place of arrogance. I desperately wanted him to be real. And like I said, I, I was a very reluctant atheist. Um, now I'm very happy and at peace in my non-theism. But at the time, and for many years, it was a very uncomfortable place to be. And uh, what I did not share in the book, because I wanted to keep it focused more on the Christian God that, that I had this relationship or lack thereof with throughout, um, what I did not share in the book was that I also, in that moment when I was begging God to knock over my jar of cinnamon, um, I was like, okay, if you're not in the Bible, God, any God, if there's any being, any goddess, any spirit guides, anything, if there's anyone listening who cares about me at all, that is powerful, that is, um, that, that is love, like one of you guys knock it over, let, let me know, do something. And I was just so desperate um, because I could get behind the idea that maybe the Christian God wasn't the truth and the end all be all, but I, I was like, I was, um, I'd explored a lot about it through in Buddhism and Taoism and Hinduism and some other faiths. And I just wanted any idea of God to be true to me personally, because I could hardly bear the thought of existing without that framework that said that everything happened for a reason and that there was a point to all of this. And, and it was so deeply comforting to me. And if I couldn't find it in Christianity, I really wanted to be able to find it elsewhere. But um, I've, I've described it before as um, I could no longer keep lying to myself. And that's how I felt as I explored other spiritual, including non-religious spiritual paths, was I just was brutally honest with myself. Like, is this real to me? Is astral projection real to me? Are crystal energies real to me? Are past life theories real to me? And they weren't. Um, I just had to admit that to myself. And I no longer wanted to waste any more years of my life believing in things that were true to other people, but not to me. And that's how I became the, the, the atheist I am today. There was definitely a grieving period of... Um, uh, a lot of anger. So I've learned about myself. I'm, a, I'm an angry griever. And maybe it's because I don't let myself get very angry in other parts of my life, which arguably could be the result of being a good little Christian girl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure many of us can relate to that. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I was very, very angry, very depressed for a long time because it was very difficult for me to see the point of life or why anything existed. And honestly, it still is. But it's I can look at these things now from a much happier curious theoretical 
mathematical physics neuroscience sort of place than an agonizing like what is the point of it all what, are, what do i what is my purpose what is my worth because i think so many of us find our purpose and our worth in our belief system or our spiritual practice whatever it is and um for me I, I describe it in my book as I had to stop asking what's the meaning of life and learn how to find meaning in life. And for me, like my life is bursting with meaning now. I just kind of had to change what meaning meant to me and how, how I went about finding it. Does that answer? <laughs> yes. I, <Okay>. was, <laughs> I was tempted to make a joke of like, can I pray for you? But <laughs> you and I have been through so much trauma. I didn't even want to make the joke. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I, I think that is so valuable and I'm glad you've said it because I know there are, my community is very inclusive and I have atheists and non-theist, um, subscribers and stuff. And you're bringing me back to a memory of when I drug all of my girlfriends to youth group and got quote, everyone saved and had their purity rings. And I was the ringleader of that. And one of my very best friends just never got with it. And I remember though, even, even though I was like very immersed in the whole evangelical culture and everything, I had known her my whole life and just looking at her and seeing her authentic disconnect, I really had to honor that in her. And I never judged her for it. And I never tried to like pound her over the head besides dragging her to church with me all the time. <laughs> but like, you know, it was just like, oh, I just had an experience with someone intimately that was like, this is just, you know, if God is real and, and he's going to have to come to her because she's, he's not there for her. I can tell, I can see it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but you're right. I had the polar opposite experience where I felt divinity forever. I can't remember not feeling that. And, and now I've come to the place where I just feel like everyone's human experience is so uniquely beautiful and what you have to offer with this scientific mindset and the way that you view the world has got to be just as valuable as any other perspective, especially with your doing, if you're doing it with honor and care of others, which you are. Um, and your earnestness, I'm sure everyone can see just bleeding through the screen <laughs> and your book is very, very much that as well. It's just so heartbreaking imagining this little former version of yourself just in all your earnestness in all of your pain and all of your deep questioning just not being supported in any way in that with the people so intimately close to you and um i know that whatever is happening with your family nowadays is like private and something intimate that is for you and your family but I would like to ask you, if I may, just, you know, what the, the process of grieving, you said there is anger in your grief. I can imagine that. But there are certain parts in the book where I just see your family not seeing you, particularly your parents, mm -hmm. and just really being so hyper-focused. For anyone who hasn't read the book yet, first of all, please just go read it, go find it. But um you know, in the book, you just describe their, their hell bent nature on like this belief that they have to go evangelize to the world. And in order to do so, they have to be homeless and just trust the support of other people. And just seeing you as a little girl having to go through that or an adolescent or prepubescent person, it was just hard to, to read. And I just wanted to know 
how that process is for you coming into an adult and acknowledging that these things happened and what they might've felt like then and now. Yeah. So, um, a lot of my initial draft of my book had to be cut for word count page length purposes. And I did explore a little bit more about this initially. So, uh, because I, I, I knew it was something that, um, that people would wonder uh, more in depth. Like, so I, I had a line in there that I felt like a piglet in a family of tiggers, <laughs> um, to use a, a, a Cordy Winnie the Pooh analogy. So cute. <laughs> um, my, so I'm the oldest of five. We were all homeschooled. Um, my mom taught all of us uh, my whole life until I went to community college. And, um, and no one quite understood why it was so difficult for me um, to just roll with the punches, to go along with the program and just follow God and to see the fun and the adventure of it. Um, to, to my younger siblings, like they remember our traveling years when we were uh, living by faith, aka living homelessly, uh, uh, and on the generosity of people. Um, they, they had a blast. Like they had some very fun memories of that time of getting to live in the woods and travel and make new friends everywhere we went. Um, for me, it was, it was just debilitating and, and so discombobulating. And, um, my, my mother, especially we've, we've had many conversations in my adult life. Um, I'm so, so grateful that my mom, uh, my dad too, but especially my mom has really endeavored to know me as an adult in mm -hmm. a way that she acknowledges she couldn't when she was raising me when I was a kid. Um, partly because she did, she just she didn't quite understand me or how my mind worked or my my delicate sensibilities. And um, I remember when I was in my early twenties, my mom sent me. Um, this quiz, uh, the highly sensitive person test. And she was like, I think you might be an HSP, like, um, like take this quest. And sure enough, like for whatever, whatever credence we want to give to internet quizzes, <laughs> I, do, I do love, I do totally love. And I do tend to give them quite a bit, <laughs> maybe more so than is clinically justifiable. Um, but I, I took it and yeah, it's, it's there, you know, like I, and I told my mom, I was like, oh yeah, like definitely a highly sensitive person and that helped my mom make so much sense of me it was like in that one moment she could be like oh that's why you were such a, a delicate orchid she calls me she she now nicknames me the orchid because I thrive in environments that are steady with little change that are predictable orderly with little spontaneity or um disruption is what it feels like to me and oh my gosh <laughs> I mean, reading yeah. your book, you just saying that is like breaking my heart. And it's, <laughs> I really, I love and appreciate that, that restoration of relationship. And I think, you know, I give so much grace and space to the people that have hurt me, even in my devotion for my book, I said, I still, you know, I hold no animosity for the pastors of my youth. And I mean that because so many of us, will perpetuate harm onto others or anxiety or our weird religious leanings, especially onto our offspring. But we will also have been victimized by those systems and taught those systems and those beliefs from other people who it's just this vicious cycle, which is kind of like when we talk about generational curses, if you're not the kind of person that like leans into that language, it, it can be just very 
obvious. Like, yes, if there are certain traumas in your history, you're all going to be passing down that trauma for generations after generation until someone uproots it and heals it and does something different. And that's why I thought it was so beautiful and courageous that you stepped up as the eldest in your family and wrote this book and put it all down because you have such an extreme circumstance where you were thrust into this nomadic lifestyle and maybe you're a hypersensitive being, but also just everything you were saying, I'm very spontaneous as well. But when I was reading the book, it was making my skin crawl, like just never having the stability. And also at the time in your life too, it was like the lack of sensitivity of this is an adolescent person coming into a sexual awakening. Obviously, hyper-Christian parents weren't going to like be able or had the tools to properly acknowledge that. But like no privacy, no way to masturbate, no clean shower to shave your legs, <laughs> no way to like have any private moments to develop relationships with valuable people in your life. Like those are the things that a teenager really, really needs to go through that process because you don't want to go through that adolescent puberty phase with your parents breathing down your neck and you were literally in a tiny trailer sharing bed with multiple siblings trying to do this blossoming of yourself so yeah I just there's no question in there I'm just like reveling in in what a difficult journey it was for you and just please give yourself so much credit for having survived and then thrived to the point that you've put it all to paper to help other people really reckon with these religious ideologies. Oh, thank you. I, I really appreciate your empathy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do. And I empathize with your parents too. Um, mm -hmm. I do want to be sensitive about not getting into to them or like pathologizing them in any way. But was there ever a moment where you had a broader understanding of what really drew them into the belief system they had? Like, do you, could you explain to people what drove this mission? What kind of justified bringing this large family into this nomadic lifestyle where you really were living off of the generosity of other people? Yeah. So, so in short, I think my parents were and are such sincere, wholehearted, whole plunge adventure-seeking people. Um, they all, the number one thing that they really stressed uh, when I, to me and my siblings we were growing up was to follow your heart. And along with that teaching was um, implicitly and sometimes explicitly was a God gives us the desires of our heart. So in following our hearts, we're following God. But that was a very confusing message for me because my parents were telling me this, the church was telling me my heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Yes, <laughs> as yes. you know. Mm -hmm. So it was a very confusing double message that I grew up with. And I try to make clear in the book that, um, especially in the epilogue where I kind of can reflect on it a little bit more, my parents were very much about the love of God and the faithfulness of God. But the churches we went to were, uh, in my opinion, to my experience, a lot more emphatic about the spiritual warfare aspect of being a Christian and the fear of God and the doing things right, but in the name of love. Like we're not legalistic. It's between you and God, but good Christians, duh, 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 duh. you know, or if you're sincere in your faith, you know, like there's all these nice ways we cloak um, the, the, the message that, um, you know, it's everything's between you and God. That verse, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Yeah. You hear that verse from the apostle Paul, but then it's like, 
also very clear that if you're a good Christian woman, you won't show your shoulders, or if you do, it's with a really wide, wide strap, you know, and you won't wear a bikini at the church retreat. Like there's all these um, implicit rules that we're shamed into following by, by ourselves and each other. So with my parents, I think, um, I think that their genuine passion for what they believed God was calling them to do, and they would use terms like radical, um, not in an extremist, fundamentalist, radicalized, religious sort of way, but radical in that my parents felt like they were doing what few modern people do nowadays, which is to um, walk out their discipleship uh, the way the disciples did, which was to give up everything, to leave their homes, to leave their families, to leave social convention, and truly just trust that God would provide and follow where they felt he led. And so I think my parents, by by nature, are people, uh, like I said, who are very event- adventure-seeking. They've always been extremely outdoorsy. To this day, they go backpacking and they love- It's my nightmare. Um, <laughs> same, girl, same. So, so like they're just, they're, they thrive on adventure. And um, towards the end of my book, when I talk, a, a, just just to dabble about the neuroscience, no one worry, it's not like a super, super science heady <laughs> book. I do apply it to like the narrative, the, the story in myself. But um, when I understood uh, a little bit more about Um, the neuroscience of mystical experiences, I understood my parents a lot more, why they were drawn to revival type settings, um, why they were more uh, prone to uh, experiencing these um, supernatural manifestations of God or the Holy Spirit. Um, And it allowed me to have a lot more compassion for them because when I could see what was going on in their brains in a way that was certainly not going on in mine, I was like, oh, like, because I, I faked it, and, and like a, a lot of other people faked it that I've talked to. It's been about 50-50 in my own anecdotal, so non-clinical research. Um, for some people, they, they did have a genuine Holy Spirit slain by the Spirit experience, and for other people, we, we just faked our way through it because we were so afraid of people finding out the truth, which yeah. was that God was ignoring us for whatever reason, despite our most earnest attempts. And so Mm. understanding that my parents are just neurologically and genetically wired toward um, having more sorts of spiritual, mystical experiences, uh, that allowed me to see like, oh, wow, like they're they're just neurologically wired differently than I am. And I'm, I'm probably more the anomaly in my family in that, in that way, which is fine. We all have such a deeper understanding of each other now and, uh, and have really endeavored. Um, my parents have always endeavored to put their relationship with us above anything that they believe. And it's not to say it hasn't been challenging at times. Um, I mentioned in the, in my book that my brother came out as bisexual, um, uh, and that certainly, I don't think the parents saw that coming. So it, you know, it was challenging, but at the end of the day, they, they put us first and That's that amazing. means everything to me. Uh, yeah. It means everything to me as well. Just parents not abandoning their family because of sexuality, especially, or personality or personal belief system is, is key, key, key. Um, and I really like appreciate that. I was, what was I going to say? I lost my train of thought with that. I'm just thinking I love bisexual men. I think they're so dope. <laughs> they are. <laughs> so good for your brother. I so was gonna, secure. Yeah, it's yeah. really, really sexy. Oh, I was just going to say like statistically, if your parents are going to pop out that many kids, you're going to have to deal with some LGBTQ stuff. Which is yes. like statistically. Yes, I agree. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> Um, 
But yeah, that's really beautiful to hear. And that, that soothes my soul a little bit because when you read something like this, it's like, did these people never have a relationship again? Cause it looked like a possibility, but um, mm. that's really interesting to consider. And also just, I guess the, the lack of awareness of what you would need in the adolescent phase of your life versus what they knew of themselves as parents and what they believed to be right. Mm-hmm. With the churches they were bringing you to, um, you brought up a lot of figures that I'm actually not familiar with, but I've, I've like Googled some of them and see that they are very profound figures in the Christian space. Would you dive into some of these specific teachers and what they were teaching and what sort of experiences you were having at these revival churches? Yes. So it's, it's pretty, pretty niche. Like at the, when I, so long story short, my parents were heavily involved in a charismatic Christian renewal movement that now is most commonly referred to as the Toronto Blessing. And within this niche charismatic bubble of the Toronto Blessing, which stemmed from the Vineyard movement, like, so the classifying of these movements is always tricky for me because a lot of them are so emphatically non-denominational that it makes them a little hard to discuss. But bottom line, like Pentecostal, Vineyard, Charismatic, the spirit filled, like these non-denominations are very interwoven to me and I may use them interchangeably. Um, Basically in Toronto, Canada, uh, there was a a revival outpouring um, where all of a sudden there was just this wave of people having mystical experiences, which in that environment were called um, being slain by the spirit. And what this would look like is um, drunkenness, just like the first Pentecost in the, in the book of Acts. And so um, it, it was a very controversial sort of Christian movement that many more conservative Christians, uh, even evangelical Christians would not condone or support. It looked demonic to them and understandably yeah. so because you have people like roaring like lions and barking like dogs and seizuring and twitching uncontrollably. And it's, it's mad. It's just, just YouTube Toronto blessing. Um, and you'll see like it's, there's some crazy stuff there. So within this movement, there were the niche famous pastors and leaders. Um, one of it, one of which um, is Rodney Howard Brown. Now, Rodney Howard Brown. So, ha- had you been familiar with him before? No. Okay. So, so uh, he recently, he most recently made headlines last year for holding church, flouting COVID guidelines, and he got arrested in Florida for keeping his church open. In, in the Florida. Of, okay. Yeah. In Flo- <laughs> yeah. Let's. Yeah. So, so, so many, so much here. Of course, it was in Florida. <laughs> so, if you Google Rodney Howard Brown. Um, that's likely one of the earlier things that's going to pop up. So when I was a kid, Rodney Howard Brown was famous. Some credited him for starting the Toronto Blessing Movement because they said that when he prayed for this pastor named Randy Clark, Randy Clark was then anointed and then spread it to all these other churches, the, the fire of God. And Rodney Howard Brown, my parents took me to see him when I was about 10. I just turned 10 and uh, I really thought that God would slay me this time. I really thought that if I was going to get slain by the spirit, it was going to be through this dude because he was like famous in my little kid eyes. Like, and he, I was at the conference and, you know, he would just point at people and they'd fall out of their chairs laughing, which made me laugh just because it looked like a funny sight. I wasn't laughing because anyone else or a supernatural being made me. Um, I, I, I wanted to though, I wanted to be taken over by a force of laughter beyond my control. Cause that would mean that God loved me enough to mm. touch me that way. Mm. So I really hoped that God would slay me this time. 
and uh, Rodney Howard Brown put his hand on my head and he was praying for me and I was on these stairs um, and nothing happened. And I just, I, I knew that, okay, I guess God really isn't going to slay me. And uh, his hand was like making my neck hurt. So I like stepped down a stair to try to relieve the pressure. And then he just pushed me down to the floor on these stairs. And I really hoped that it had been an accident and that like in my mind, if another grown up did that, they would have been like, oh, I'm so sorry, like here and helped me back up. But what actually ended up happening was he like just kind of like glared down at me lying on the floor there. And the impression that I took away was he wanted me to make me make him look good. He didn't want me to expose that he'd pushed me over, not the Holy Spirit, not God. And years later, when I'm in my mid 20s, late, late 20s, I found out that I was just one of so many whom Rodney Howard Brown both spiritually and physically abused. Um, now, again, some people, I think, were genuinely undergoing some sort of mystical experience at his conferences, at other people's conferences, but uh, that was extremely validating for me and little 10-year-old me to know that, like, I hadn't made it up. He did actually push me, and he did, like, imply that uh, I shouldn't expose him. Um, so I, I don't know. I'm sure there's a way he rationalizes it um, as, you know, sometimes like a, a fake it to make it sort of thing. I don't know. I, I can't assume his motives, but uh, You're but gracious. Yeah. <laughs> I, I try. <laughs> I think most, I think, I think, um, and this is something I think I, I'm sure maybe you could relate that acting taught me was even the most despicable villains have the best of intentions. Like it's our job as actors to find the good motive behind every character we play, even if that character is committing heinous crime. So I do find that, um, that acting actually has given me the unexpected gift of, of being able to be a more gracious, empathetic human being, even when maybe I shouldn't, uh, but that's a whole other can of worms. <laughs> Yeah, you're bringing up so many things that I'm just like going through my personal life, um, which we do not have to get into, but, but it's just, <laughs> <laughs> maybe you have to rehang up this call. Okay. Um, but, no, um, but a lot of it has just been this reckoning with all of the ways that I was not true to my intuitive power and, mm. and something that keeps coming up for me which I would say is like the Holy Spirit talking to me. I just keep hearing, don't pretend you don't know things that you do know. Because I think mm. as a survival tactic for a really long time, and I believe a lot of women will relate to this, is just like, keep yourself small, keep yourself meek. If there's any trouble, the safest route is to just not stir the pot. And we have really good reason to believe that because sometimes we're actually in physical danger or in sexual danger, what have you. So a lot of times it's easier to comply, which you did as a 10 year old and just start shaking on the floor and pretending because you don't want to be in the, the bad, you know, the, this man's, I'm saying, having a rough day with my words. It's okay. It's okay. Um, but yeah, I can totally understand why someone so young and so vulnerable would feel intimidated in a situation like that and feel this deep knowing that the best way out of the situation would be to comply, to not stir the pot because you don't really know what's going to happen otherwise. And I really think a book like yours will help for people to start 
healing those certain elements of themselves and start really considering the mental gymnastics that being raised in this sort of culture forces you to play. And I, you helped me feel less humiliated of myself as a child. And Jamie Lee Finch just uh, advocated for both of our books on her newsletter and just gave us shout outs. Yes, we love you, Jamie. Um, But it was beautiful because she was saying like, Wayward is the book that like pulls you through childhood and adolescence and reminds you of that and heals those elements. And then mine takes you through young adulthood into adulthood. And I was kind of like hiding my secret childhood that really embarrasses me now because when I look at my journals I have the same sort of anxiety ridden overthinking everything sort of entries where every single thing has meaning and um I could like pull up so many passages from your book where I can just see your your young mind just being like oh well if this happened then this happened and this happened then this means god and da 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 da, da because you're just trying so hard to fit your entire life into this narrative that God is in control, that everything is quote happening for a reason, and that you are a part of this movement that is truly battling this other dimension that we're not privy to, that we can't see, and we're the ones in that power. Everyone else is our enemy. We're the ones that have the answer. And watching you as a young person reckon with all of these big feelings and try so hard to articulate it and put it in writing again like I said I think it's just going to be hopefully so healing to so many people because it helps me realize I wasn't crazy I wasn't uniquely out there with my spirituality there's something about it that you just have to do these gymnastics in order to survive could could you tell me if you learned anything just looking into the the brain chemistry of people or these other like elements that you're more privy to than I am about why we might've fallen into that or what this manipulation actually does to the mind and body when you're in the midst of these experiences. So, um, hmm. yeah, this is, this is definitely a topic that I, that I love to explore. Um, I would say the short answer, the reason that, um, especially young people, but anyone of any age can be uh, drawn to and susceptible to um, magical thinking, I guess, might be the term or or just uh, that I'll I'll use here. And hopefully that doesn't offend anyone. Um, I think that we're pattern seeking. I think that um, human beings are very pattern seeking. Uh, Whether the patterns are accurate to the conclusions that we draw from them or not. Um, I'm a very pattern seeking person. I, I love to find patterns and like formulate theories and be like, does this test out, you know, and I'm as, I'm as susceptible to confirmation bias as anyone out there. You know, we, we all are, that's how we're wired and it's for our survival. So my, my most comfortable lens to look at humanity and why we do the things we do or don't do most comfortable lens that I've found that feels the safest to me is through, um, I guess, a combination of evolutionary psychology and neuroscience, because um, it's, it's tangible to me. It doesn't require faith to, um, to observe it in action, both in, when we look at the past and when we look at the present and theoretically project into the future. So humans being the um, pattern-seeking, 
empathetic creatures that we are can sometimes on more, um, I don't want to say extreme, but, but in certain situations that can leave us very vulnerable to herd mentality slash groupthink slash peer pressure. And I think in certain spiritual environments, and we'll just keep this specific to um, evangelical slash charismatic Christianity, when we see people around us undergoing um, a Holy Spirit moment or a purity culture moment where we're like, galvanized like wear the ring sign the pledge like we, we're all on the same page this is true love this is true selflessness to wait for our future spouse and body heart mind like that is a normal to me it's a very normal response to what what whatever your exposure is like for some people who grew up in an entirely different country say say where um islam is the dominant faith they're going to manifest that under that belief system um so Wherever we grow up, we're, we, most humans want to be accepted, want to be liked, want to fit in, and want to not be shamed, want to not be expelled from the culture. So I think that uh, there's a very, um, at, at its core, I think it's about survival, if that answers your question most succinctly. I think that um, social survival is crucial to our physical survival. And that's lessening a little bit more as technology has allowed us to have more independent long distance lives and coming off the heels of this pandemic, I think we can all understand what that means. Like we're, mm. but we, we still crave each other. We still crave each other's approval. And I think that that's normal. It used to make me feel very, um, a little bit of a sh shame and rebellion. Like, no, I don't care what people think about me sort of thing. It's like, no, of course I do. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. I'm, I'm wired to because that, that facilitates my survival. So as a kid and as a teenager growing up in a very evangelical um, Christian environment, I was totally willing to play along um, because it ensured that uh, I would not only physically survive here and literally off of the goodness of the people that my family sometimes would stay with, but also I would survive spiritually in this battle between good and evil and God mm. and Satan. So survival is usually my, my go-to answer for like, why do we do the things we do? I feel like I can generally find a pretty strong argument that everything we do is going to come down to um, survival at the end of the day. It's the most bottom line instinct <laughs> yeah. that we have is to survive. <laughs> yeah. And you're reminding me of uh, some of the opening of the book where you're discussing being in really young, I don't know if it was nursery school, but maybe where you're being told about this spiritual battle and you're all passing out swords and armor and all I was reading in that was anxiety and thinking, now that I have a son, I am so overprotective of who has his ear as far as spirituality is concerned, because it's things like that, that really confirm your theory that you're giving, which is like, you were taught at a young age, you need to survive this, you're in danger of eternal damnation forever and ever. So pick up this little tiny plush plastic sword and come into battle with us. And you're recounting these sorts of things from a scientific intellectual point of view is not at all intimidating to my faith. And I wish so much that more Christians would understand that you can absolutely still have a fully formed, very deep spiritual practice and listen without being scared of 
people who have a completely different mindset as far as these things go, because to me, it just informs our experiences even more. Mm, I, I really appreciate that. And I would also say that to, um, let's just say the more hardcore atheist community. I find myself sometimes in a position where um, feeling occasionally like I'm too atheist for the ex-evangelical, but maybe still spiritual community, but I'm too faith friendly for the st more staunch atheist community. And <laughs> yeah. fortunately, most people that I interact with are so gracious on all sides, like so, so, so lovely. Um, but I do, I, I, yeah, I, I appreciate you saying that. Um, I do, I do agree with you. I wish more people of faith weren't so threatened by academia or, or sciencey things because I really, if nothing else, like, like, so I have a, a Christian friend who actually teaches science and he says that um, science affirms his faith. Whereas for me, it kind of disaffirmed my own faith. Everyone's different, you know, yeah. like there's, but I don't know, there's, there's verses in the Bible you know, not to get too biblical because multi-interpretability guys, um, but like that both affirm and discourage intellectual pursuit. You know, like there's, there's many scholars that like will focus on the verses that are very um, for learning and using the mind God gave you. And then there are other verses like, let's just start with the story of Eve eating from the tree of knowledge. So that seemed to be very, um, lean not on your own understanding type of thing and be guided by the spirit. So yeah, which is my upbringing. Yeah, absolutely. And that's interesting because I remember writing in my book that at one point in my prayer life, it struck me so hard that Eve was brave, not evil. Her pursuit of knowledge was a positive thing. It was beautiful Ooh, for me. <laughs> yeah. For me, it was saying like, she was the brave one to usher us into a real, true, deeper understanding of why we might be on this earth or what our purpose is, which is why no matter what your faith practice is or lack thereof, we still end up sitting here in the same, not room, in our respective yeah. rooms, asking <laughs> ourselves the same questions of like same existential things, same challenges that we come up with relationally like we still are one in our humanity and our pursuit of joy and happiness and love yeah yeah um what else do I want to ask you I want to ask you so many things um <laughs> I'm just having flashbacks too like I just remember looking in my closet and when I was really really deep in evangelicalism I remember getting this deep anxiety that I had to let God pick out my outfits. Oh, me too. Yeah. You felt the same way. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. So you were yes. just like, again, you're, you're just reminding me of so many of my journal entries and just this deep, deep, deep anxiety that it gives you from a young age. Yes. Um, because you so badly want to do it right. Like we, we want to, we're so, so genuine that we want to please God as much as we can. Like, so, mm -hmm. so for you, what did, how would you be able to discern whether God approved of an outfit <laughs> or not? Like, what did that look like for you? And then I'll tell you mine. <laughs> I, yeah, I would just sit there and be like, just intuiting it, I guess. I have no mm. belief that what I was happen what, what like that was actually happening to me. I think it was it was just a result of extreme anxiety about needing every single decision I make to be centered around God. I still see that anxiety manifest in my life to this day. With my channel, for example, I have this 
fear that if I say one wrong thing, if I misrepresent a point a little bit, if I stumble over questions like I've done throughout this interview, <laughs> that, um, that all of a sudden I'll just lose my whole destiny. And I'm just now coming to terms with how deeply embedded in purity culture and evangelicalism and everything that that kind of thought process is because it's still all about eternal damnation. Even if that's something I don't believe in anymore, it's still sitting with the belief that if I do one wrong thing, you know, God will be mad at me and I won't have that blessing anymore. So I, I just remember sitting there convincing myself that God was giving me like, a thumbs up to a certain outfit and a thumbs down to a different outfit. And then I'd walk out the door still terrified that I picked the wrong one. Yes. Because yes. <laughs> no, what if you were deceived by your own flesh? Yeah. No, I know. I know. I've, I had so many of the same moments reading your book where I was like, like you talked about, you know, like God or Jesus, like crying, uh, just imagine him crying. And like, I had that same thing. Like I imagined Jesus crying when I would listen to a secular song that fueled lust. Like I would just picture him up there on that cross, just like weeping and then picturing myself there nailed thinking it should have been me. And he did this for me. And like, it was like, You're like, why am I listening to Britney Spears? It's not yes. worth it. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, and yet I had so many moments, so many moments like that reading your book as well. And I, I know for, for myself, like I would determine, um, what God did or didn't want me to do based off of either how guilty I felt about it or how much I wanted it. If it was something like, for example, I really wanted this bikini from Guess. There was this other bikini that I also wanted from Beach Bunny that was far more wayward, <laughs> let's just say. Uh, and, and I like was torn between the two and like, it's a bikini. So already I feel like I'm in dangerous waters because I grew up wearing one piece swimsuits. And when I was a teenager, my mom compromise let me wear a tankini remember those like wow yeah sliver of skin (laughs) sliver of skin yeah and ideally like it wouldn't show my belly button it could still my mom was like it can be a two-piece but it can't show your belly button so either the shorts had to be really really high or the tank of the tankini had to come down really low well Um, you know on Pornhub like the number one search is belly button guys just like they can't (laughs) no I'm just oh okay (laughs) no I have I have never, she's gullible. I've never heard. Um, yeah. I mean, we problem, both are. This exactly. Is <laughs> this is, this is what we're talking about everyone. Yes. Um, no, it's just funny to me because just thinking about it, I'm like, what is erotic? I've never heard someone have, you know, I'm not discounting any kinks. Maybe you're out there and you have a belly button kink, but never met someone, never talked to someone about it. Anyway, go ahead. You're on your bikini mission. <laughs> yeah, on my bikini mission. And and like I ended up getting the guest bikini because even though it was like still a bikini, I I felt like I wanted the beach bunny one more. And I would have felt guiltier getting the beach bunny one. So that was how I should uh, know that God was more at peace with me disobeying purity culture by going with this one if I was going to disobey that at all. And so it was like I, that was kind of how I tried to gauge like what God did or didn't want me to do because, you know, like, like I said, like I never felt God. I never felt like he told me anything. I never heard from God. And so I would just make up these ways that I would try to discern like, what's my, what's a desire in my heart that God wants to fulfill when he says, I will fulfill the desires of your heart. And what's a desire of my heart that I need to, um, that is deceitful and is deceiving me. And that 
ladies and gentlemen, is the crux of my agonizing relationship to faith because like mm. I never knew. I never knew. It was always like the, the measure, my own measure, because I never felt God's love. I did feel guilt and my fear of God. So those were the only barometers that felt real to me that I could use to discern like, what is, what am I supposed to do here? If I claim to be a God, uh, like a Christian, and I want my life to reflect honor to the Bible's teachings and to Christ's teachings, like, how can I discern like what will do that? And, and it just boiled down to how guilty or ashamed or that I felt about it, which is so like, I, I wished I could have had the experience of like, my faith being driven by love and like, oh, freedom, you know, like, oh no, it's because God wanted this for me and because it makes me happy. I wish that could have been the, the guide of my faith, but it, it just wasn't. Um, that is, however, the guide of my, my secular um, humanity, my, my secular ethics is, is much more driven by grace, compassion, happiness, like things that I was supposed to have found in faith, but I didn't. I just found confusion, fear, and shame. Those were what, what I found in faith. And the secular world has given me all of the, the beautiful things. That's not to say there's not confusion and shame here too. And that's not to say that um, faith was an entirely miserable experience for me. You know, I did have some positive experiences in youth group. And I did have like, I have a tattoo that I got post-Christianity of these little piggies trampling pearls. <laughs> oh my so, gosh. Yeah, because I loved that verse, don't cast your pearls to swine. And to me, that meant like, don't give away the, the nuggets of my truth to people who might not be able to appreciate them. And so I do still find, even like as an atheist, I find that I do resonate with some things that can be found in the Bible and that I think are just beautiful, universal things that many of them predate the Bible. It's, so it's like, like um, the golden rule, you know, that predates the Bible by thousands of years. And so it's, it's, uh, it's so interesting to me how Christianity and other religions, um, I think that everything good that is found in these, like, is, if they're so true, which I think they are, it's because they exist outside of it too. And I don't like when religion and spirituality try to appropriate human goodness. Mm. That's, um, that's something that I, I really, I just don't see evidence for, because if you go to, if, if you meet, if you go to any atheist group, you're going to find so many beautiful, gracious, humble, compassionate people. And in my own experience, far more than I ever did in any spiritual group. And I think that's because we're so at war with ourselves and it makes us at war with each other um, in a way that the secular aren't quite as cursed with in the same way, because we have to be right with ourselves and right with God and therefore right with each other and hold each other accountable. When we're not trying to all be on the same page about an ideology, in my experience, <laughs> there's just so much more freedom and acceptance and therefore empathy and love, which is what it was supposed to be about. So well, that's, that's my little, my little rant there. <laughs> no, that was gorgeous. That was as eloquent as you write. That was really beautiful. And again, our books play so much into each other because I'm sure you remember, especially this one scene where I'm laying in bed with two completely secular people that are of the world and they're in Hollywood, so they're dangerous and demonic. And I realized very profoundly that I'd felt more safe and more at home, more loved, more free in that girl's bed, not in a sexual situation, just laying in bed watching a movie. I was like, I feel at home. At church, they're constantly calling me their family, but then they just kicked out my friend who was playing drums for nine years on the band because she's a lesbian. 
That's mm-hmm. not family. That, that mm-hmm. never was family. That's not moral. That's not ethical. That's not love. And um, it's just really interesting and beautiful hearing you speak about all of these things because when you said, um, well, how did you say it about the church tries to appropriate human goodness, human goodness. Yeah. (laughs) That was so, so beautifully put because that's exactly true. We don't have, we're not capitalizing that we are actually not even exercising that in so many church spaces, which is why this whole channel exists to be like, look over here, look over here, look over here, look at all this um, immorality, look at all of this human suffering that is being caused inside of this organization and the accusation that i always get that i know you get as an atheist as well is that our freedom means that we are doing whatever we feel like and it doesn't matter if we're hurting or bulldozing other people over as long as we get ours as long and it's like no not at all i have such a higher ethic and standard of how i behave and how i treat others now more than I ever had before because it's intuitive. And I remember envying any of my friends that were secular. I envied their intellect and I envied the fact that they were allowed by whatever, by their lack of God or whatever, to intuitively move through the world and actually understand why they were doing the thing that they were doing, why they were abstaining from alcohol or abstaining from sex. There was always a reason yeah. That was solid that I could understand versus my ethic, which was like, because Pastor Scott said I have to, and I don't even know why yeah. I'm doing this. Oh man, that, that was, <clears throat> those were some of my favorite moments reading your book was, was seeing how, um, and I feel like you did this so beautifully, like time and throughout seeing what you learned about secular or just human, human ethics. They're just human ethics, you know, yeah. and, and where you like, like, um, like your, your girlfriends that you mentioned, uh, that, uh, that you were really close with, you know, seeing like wh- how, where did they learn their boundaries without anyone to tell them, you know, like where did, or, or your friend, the wardrobe stylist on the shoot that, that like wanted to like tell you like, oh, don't do it from this place, you know, like, don't, mm-hmm. and, and like wanted to, to um, protect you. And, and you, I think you, you'd know better than me, but you had some, a line in there about, um, uh, he was trying to teach you about ethical sexuality or so, something like that. And, yeah. and in a way, because I feel like a lot of people who I relate to, the, I related to that so much um, in my own, in my own life. And I explored this a little bit less because like you said, referencing what Jamie said about the, both of our stories earlier, um, my book focused a lot more on my childhood and adolescence and my young adulthood, I touch on, like I touch on my, my early twenties and my mid to late twenties, but that was really where I had to relearn my ethics. And like, I don't, I don't know if I'll, at this point, I can't even think of writing another book at the moment, (laughs) but if I did, maybe I'd explore that a little more because it was really tough. And I found that, um, that when we're told people who grew up like us did that, that, um, we can't lean on our own understanding, whether that's intellect or intuition, whatever words we want to use, our own truth. When we cannot trust our own truth because it might be deceiving us, um, we are learning blind obedience 
simultaneously mm. being told not to blindly obey because it's a relationship, not a rule system. That's again, so confusing. <laughs> I really struggle with that like, <laughs> back then and today. So I, I, I didn't know, I, it was just such a, a mind fuck to me. Um, and as a young adult post-Christianity learning like how, like what are, what is ethical? Like, cause it's easy to go from like an extreme pendulum shift, you know, like, oh, if, if it was, um, and you know, this isn't necessarily about my, about, well, I guess a little bit about myself, but like I've observed, so I just back up. I just watched um, your YouTube video on how purity cultures affected men. Oh yeah. Um, which I loved because I, and I really hope to see a, a more public discourse about the way purity cultures specifically affected cisgendered heterosexual men. Yeah. Um, but, but one of the things that I've observed um, in some of some post religious guys that I've known, and I can sort of relate to this myself is a, we need to learn a secular sexual ethic because, um, so I don't want to, I don't want to expose anyone's privacy, but I, but like I've met guys who, uh, grew up under such extreme purity culture that just looking at a girl lustfully was so taboo side hugs were the thing like no kissing no touching no fantasizing mm -hmm. no jerking off like none of that that when they left religion and they discovered the freedom it was like there it almost went in my opinion uncomfortably far where it was like no 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 there are still sexual ethics um no still means no, and not every girl wants, you know, her ass smacked uh, just because you're allowed to now. Um, you're, yeah. You may not still be allowed to do that, but for an entirely different reason. Um, right, because it's ethical, yeah. <laughs> because it's ethical, not because the, the Bible says, or your youth pastor who, or whoever, the Holy Spirit uh, says, but because there, there are still ethics in humanity outside of faith. And, and they can be so different depending on what culture you're in and what friend group you're a part of, you know, like what's cool with my group of friends might be not cool with others. Um, and, and that's fine. It's just, it is overwhelming to navigate. And I so love how you did that in your story through these people that you interacted with, um, how you were so open about your own naivete in that way and I related to it so much because yeah without an accountability partner without you know a youth pastor like reminding me every damn week like without all of this stuff without my own internal wrestlings with do I feel guilty or afraid of this then that means I probably shouldn't do it without all of that what's left to guide me mm. um, and it was it's, it's challenging not to not to scare anyone but like I I'm a big fan of learning the hard way because I think me too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think for me it's been the most mm -hmm. truthful way because I need to know I need to know why I'm doing or not doing something for me, not because someone suggested it, whether they're secular or spiritual, um, but because like within my own self, I thought this was okay and I found I actually don't like the way this makes me feel, um, and I do like the way this makes me feel, and just and this even though I'm okay with this, this person's telling me it doesn't make them feel good. So because I care about this person, not going to do that anymore, you know, like, but it is, I feel, I feel like a little kid. There's so many times to this mm. day, I still feel like a kid trying to understand like society and social customs and norms. And like, I'm always so afraid of reverting back to a place of fear-based living. There's just so much irony in that sentence. I'm afraid of living <laughs> by fear, <laughs> but like, uh, in all sincerity, like I, I, I want to live more from a place of um, 
grace and freedom and, uh, and compassion. And so that motivates me to always be checking in with myself, not in the way that I used to with religion, where it was like fraught, but in a way of, uh, that's more calm and observant and just ask, just be curious, just ask, like, yeah, this is upsetting somebody. Is it okay if I do this? You know, like it's, it's a, it's, it does make me feel like I'm perpetually a little kid though. A lot of the time. (laughs) Totally. Like, how does everyone else just know? (laughs) I know you're reminding me of the scene in my book where I go to (laughs) swing with another couple. Yes. There's a lot in the book. (laughs) But I remember the girl being there and she was like, I look back and I'm like, she was so young and so sexually ethical. Every single move she made, she said, is this okay? Is this okay? Are you comfortable? She was intuiting my emotions the entire time. And I look back at that with so much honor towards her because, and then so much like understanding that just based on her situation of being in an open relationship with a man where she was able to have sex with someone outside of her partner, that she would be evil and demonic. But again, that's another situation where I was so much safer, quote, in the world than I was underneath the steeple. Because to your point, like other people have been practicing these sorts of ethics for a really long time. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So on, on, on that note related to that, um, and I know this might be a little bit of a segue, but it was a question that I wanted to ask you anyway, um, after reading your book, because it really jumped out at me. So, you know, we're just talking, we were just talking about sexual ethics and, you know, how, how lovely it is when someone can check in, like, is this okay? Are you enjoying this? Do you want me to stop? Are you good? You know, like, um, so that, to me sometimes like if a if a guy because i'm cisgendered straight girl i very much related and loved how frank you were about your horniness and boy craziness too <laughs> like totally right there with you um but like for me i found myself having to learn to adapt to um especially post the me too movement and church Too movement having to adapt my own sexual turn-ons to fit um um rising standards of sexual ethic because and I have it I you you wrote that you explored um rape fantasies yes me too what turns me on is not being asked what turns me on is like so the relationship between the 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 there, there's so much to unpack here that I want to tread very carefully. And I was almost even reluctant, but like, I was, I was wondering if you delved into um, specifically why you think that you had and or have ravishment fantasies and where the lines are for you and your sexual uh, turn-ons in the real world like if if you feel comfortable and feel free to cut this out if you're like ah don't really want to go there um no I'll go anywhere obviously (laughs) (laughs) and and I'm happy to share too because there's another thing that I that I referenced specifically for this talk to to talk about but from you first yeah well it's funny that you brought up that silly quiz that your mom brought to you because I remember I had a gigantic revelation through an issue of Cosmopolitan where it was talking about fantasies and why people have certain fantasies. And I just remember it was really simple. It was one of those like tiny reads. It was probably like getting my nails done or something. And it was just laying out all of these different kinks, which by the way, your kinks are developed by the time you're six years old. And they are that 
inherent in who you are and and even the i like the terminology of kink or fetish is something i'm kind of prone to pushing against because i'm just like at what point does something very normal then transfer into just like this is almost vanilla like for example a foot fetish is one of the most common things that people have so it's like how is that even a fetish it's basically like having missionary sex at that point yeah, you know? yeah, yeah 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 anyway point being then there are definitely developmental things in our sexuality and what we desire and in this cosmopolitan thing it just said if you ever felt like you ha- are doing a lot of work in your life and you have to control absolutely everything in your life. Like you're a business oriented woman or you're struggling to like provide for your family. You might develop this sort of fetish where you want just to be ravished. You want someone else to make all decisions and just get to like lay back and be taken away by this experience. And then it also said, or if you've been repressed sexually and in any way, it takes the onus and responsibility off of you, which is why I like where I think it comes into both of us. I feel like I have ravishment fantasies for both of these reasons at this point, because I have been like taking care of myself for so long. So there is that element of like, just take me away, take me into this experience. But then there was also that moment of feeling, and this is dark and I hope it doesn't trigger anybody because I, I, obviously really empathize with sexual assault, sexual assault, something that's happened to me. This is not what we're talking about. We're actually talking about a healthy fantasy, which is a healthy like sexual expression if it's done in consent and everything. But um, for me, it really came down to like, I am so desperate to have sex. I'm so desperate to have this experience. And the only way it wouldn't be my fault is if someone else just imposed this on me. And then of course, in that fantasy, it was like, and I also hope it's someone I really like that I think is attractive, that isn't a scary person. You're never going to find a not scary person that is willing to genuinely (laughs) do that. And that, that again, is like the mental gymnastics that you talk about throughout your whole book, where you're trying to like, justify, like, I am still a good person. I'm still a good girl. And, and then it became the only way that I would pleasure myself was with ravishment fantasies because even in my fantasy life, I felt too guilty to fantasize about consensual sex that I was asking for or that I wanted. So even in fantasy, I had to make it someone else's fault. Is that kind of where you were coming from or? Yes. And sorry that took so long, but I wanted to like preface by being like, everything is normal. We're talking about health, but like, yeah. No, I think that's important. I think that's very important. Um, Yes. So I 100% relate to everything you're saying. And for me, like I, I've been having ravishment fantasies. uh, Yeah. Since I started like getting off masturbating, which for me was at 12 years old. And I, I, it wasn't until I was in my mid twenties. I was reading this book by Esther Perel. Are you familiar with Esther Perel's work? I love Esther Perel. Yeah. Yeah. She, Mm -hmm. so for anyone who doesn't know, she's, she's like a a relationship counselor, author, expert, like she, she's great. And she wrote this book called Mating in Captivity. And I read it when I was in my mid twenties and I highlighted this part and it said, um, for many women, simulations of forced seduction provide a safe outlet for sexual aggression. 
Female sexual aggression so contradicts our cultural notions of femininity that we can unleash it only in these imaginary transpositions. Let him, the invented assailant, express the aggression so many women are reluctant to express themselves. And I remember that that just really hit me and set me on this tailspin of research of like, that I've since found like, we're not the only ones. There's a lot of Christian and ex-Christian women who have these fantasies for exactly the reasons that you just named. And I, for myself, like in my own language, it was because like, I, I didn't want to take responsibility for any of my sexual desires um, because it would mean that I was cheating on my future husband. Yeah. If I imagined having sex, and I would try to imagine wedding night sex, <laughs> which sometimes worked for me, <laughs> that was like the only consensual sex that could get me off was like, okay, let's imagine actually losing my virginity. And of course it's going to be my wedding night. And I would like, that it, it <laughs> you're wasting time like being like I was in the white dress and now we're back at the hotel yeah and it's like oh yeah, yeah I know yeah. And I like, know and, and <laughs> yes like your wedding story and your wedding night and lack of sex on your wedding night correct me up thank you for sharing that um because I know you're not the only one I'm sure who's had that type of moment but yeah, yeah. Like, for me like I I needed more to get off sexually it wasn't enough for me to like like I couldn't have consensual consensual sex just couldn't get me off in, in my fantasy life. And, and like, I really did want to um, feel overpowered because then it wasn't my fault. Um, and I felt like I could stand clean before God, you know, and look myself in the mirror and be like, you know, like that's, that's just how it's going to be. But I've, I've so, I, I needed to ask you about it because like, I've, I've seen so few women be willing to speak about that publicly. Most of the sites that I've seen talking about different reasons for rape fantasies, including the, the other one you shared, which is like a control when you're, when you're in such a high, when you have so much responsibility, sometimes it's nice to fantasize about someone just like immobilizing you because then you don't have to make any decisions. Yeah. Um, you know, other, other things are that, that I've heard are sometimes it's a way for a person who has been sexually assaulted to regain control, a sense of control over that assault. Like there's so many different reasons mm-hmm. why we have the fantasy life that we do, but yeah, like I just, I felt like, um, when you wrote, when you wrote that in your book, I was like, oh my gosh, like there's so much more to explore here. And I really hope that someone like Esther Perel or someone else does some sort of study that specifically focuses on um, purity culture and the fantasies that both men and women have who were born out of purity culture, not just Christian purity culture, but Muslim purity culture, Jewish purity culture, like all of these cultures that have opinions about sex that are usually very negative. Um, Yeah. I'm just like, I love that you brought that up too, because I love my publisher. They're incredible. But I had to fight a little bit to get that portion in because it's, it's so controversial. It's so jarring. And at the same time, I knew for a fact that other people that have come from repressive sexual backgrounds and ethics would feel seen in that moment. Oh, and thank you so much for fighting for that. Cause I, I did, <laughs> yeah. I totally felt seen in that moment. I, I love that you're saying it. Cause I just, <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. I was like, no, you don't understand how important this is to have in there. I know it's effed up. I know it's a mess, but like, yes, this is the mess that we're in. And I will say there's absolutely nothing wrong with a, va- a ravishment fantasy, especially if it's played out in a fully consensual way by both parties. Um, And like you said, it can be healing for assault victims. I saw this beautiful documentary on Vice 
with this couple that does bondage play. And it was because she was assaulted in a bondage position and doing it with a partner that she trusted helped her heal and helped her reclaim that moment for herself, which made me cry. And I was just like, and then we as Christians will just immediately vilify it. Like, oh, we see a sex shop with bondage toys. Like that's demonic. And it's like, no, it's actually, it can be very healing for people. So, and I will say too, that I've, I've noticed the healthier I become sexually, this is not to say anyone's not healthy that has ravishment fantasies, but my fantasies have broadened and expanded, let's say, because suddenly I don't have to be beholden to this one specific thing. And, and frankly, I've explored it enough that I'm like, okay, let's try something else. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. But yeah, yeah. What, if, if anything comes to mind, is another part of your book that you felt like you really had to fight for um, <laughs> to, to stay in? Oh, I want to know this. Do you have an example from yours? Yeah. So, me... so for mine, I had to really fight for um, the, some of the, the neuroscience-y bits. Oh, okay. At the end, I got told... Um, uh, not so much by my final editors, but early on in the editing process with a freelance editor, uh, like I, I, some of my earliest feedback was like, ooh, this takes us out of it. And to be fair, it was about three chapters instead of one. So, <laughs> so to, to be fair, because I could go on and on about this because I was learning so much, guys. And I just felt like everyone needs to know because this is so healing. Oh my gosh. We should <laughs> but, do another uh, conversation about that. I'm really curious yeah, to know. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah. I'd love to. Um, but yeah, I really fought for that because um, so the argument against it was like, this is interesting, but it's starting to feel like another book. It's starting to feel like we're losing track of Alice and her story and what's going on in her life. And we're starting to feel like we need footnotes to some of this data that you're citing. And like, like it's interesting, you know, but like, I don't think we need it. And I was like, Mm, we do <laughs> because just like you said, I'm like, I know it's going to speak to some people, especially people who like myself never had that mystical experience that, that was called the Holy spirit. Yeah. Um, and I really, I found so basically what it is, I condensed a lot of it. Some large chunks had to go uh, that, but what stayed um, is what I really, really wanted to stay, which was hoping to show that like these experiences are not unique to Christianity. They're found in so many different cultures under mm. so many different names all throughout time. And I wanted to show that hip- hypnosis and placebo, the placebo effect are at its core, the reasons why um, that I learned uh, why people at revivals and churches and other uh, spiritual settings can have these soberly induced trance state, like visions, shaking tongues, like, and the bigger question that I would love to explore, again, no desire to write, write another book right now, but if I do, that I might is, um, that's what I was going to say. I was like, is this your second book? Maybe. Could be, it could be. Like, <laughs> the, the bigger question to me, which I think is more fascinating is not necessarily what is going on? What is the Holy Spirit? It's why do humans have the ability to have mystical experiences? Um, like, and not just soberly induced ones, but like DMT, psilocybin mushrooms, LSD. You touched on on drugs in your book. Yeah, it's one of my favorite chapters. I love. Yes, <laughs> I, I loved it too. And see, if if I'd if I'd written longer about my 20s, I would have explored a lot more in depth. Like I said, I had to cut so much. So I chose to make my book more about my my youth than my adulthood. But if I had explored more about my adulthood, I would have 
definitely talked about how what the first time I did LSD was the first time I had the slightest inkling of what people talked about when they said they felt a connection to divinity or to God. That's the first time, the only way I've ever felt that is through psychedelic medicine. Mm. And uh, that's not to say that this is for everyone, you know, like I understand we're talking about substances that are illegal, (laughs) frankly, in (laughs) in the United States. Um, But Well, there's a lot of reasons for that too. That's a whole other story. There are, there are. And speaking, speaking for my own story, I've had, you know, good trips, bad trips, scary moments, but I will say that I'm really, really grateful for the psychedelic experiences I've had because they allow me to um, relate to spiritual and religious people in a way that I couldn't do before. It gave me an understanding of like, oh, like this sort of sense of connectedness, of oneness with the universe, of intuition, like these words that mean nothing to me prior, frankly, it was like, I have no idea what people are talking about when they talk about intuition or um, the the un- collective consciousness. It's like, what is this thing that people keep describing most people that I just am not getting? Um, I felt like I, I feel like I have an inkling, maybe, of what that is. And as someone that's not done both, because I still have yet to have like a, a more soberly induced mystical experience, um, it, it really felt like a gift to me. And uh, it's, it, I'm glad that you explore it and touch on it in your book for both the positive and the negative. Um, yeah. That story with, with your ex, it was very jarring. I, my heart broke for you reading that because I've also, like I said, I've also had scary experiences with substances. So I hope no one's coming away from this being like, um, like jump at it and go, 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 go. <laughs> yeah. that's not at all what I'm advocating. But, but if you, if you are the the um, type of person that thinks drugs are bad, I would just hope to encourage that um, sometimes they're the only thing that allows someone to feel a connection to universal love. And that I think, I, would, I, I hope people could respect that um, because it really was, the, and not just LSD, that's, you know, phar- pharmaceutical, I guess we'd say, but like magic mushrooms, cannabis, like they're plants. So even, even if you do believe in, in God, like God made these plants for a reason and gave us receptors in our brains to be able to play and interact with these plants for a reason. And maybe it is so that God could be accessible to everyone with or without faith. That's what I like to think. That's really sweet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I do appreciate that we're talking about the balance. It's going back to ethics again as well, which is like Mm -hmm. our whole point. I I read that and deduced that so many times in Wayward. And obviously that's a part of On Her Knees too, which is like, you are not throwing out the baby with the bathwater just because you and I both had a huge faith reckoning and had to really unpack and deconstruct everything. And we've landed in different places. We are still, from what I can tell, so, so aligned because what we land on is humanity, love, compassion, empathy, and this willingness to accept other people's experiences and to really delight in the fact that we're all so different. I find it delightful that you see the world differently than I do. And and for me, that's only just an opportunity to learn more about each other and about the world. It informs my faith even more. And it's also just fascinating and and maybe comforting to parents, because if I could say anything to parents, it's like, please, please pick up a copy of Wayward, because (laughs) 
you can try your best to force basically your child to be in a specific ethic and, and scare them as what, as much as you want with hell and damnation and everything else. But at the end of the day, everyone is an incredibly unique person. And I, as a mother aim to just always be sitting down and looking at my son and listening to him and, and allowing him to tell me what his life is about and what he wants. And again, everything in parameters, you're not just throwing everything out and saying, so he can just jump on tables and do whatever he wants. It's like, no, there's still rules. There's still ethics to all of these things. Like you're saying, you're not allowing people to just go off and do drugs and do whatever you want. There's polarities. Yeah, I'm not advocating for recklessness. Exactly. There's yeah. polarities to everything. There's negatives, there's positives, but at the end of the day, you know, our two books meet in this place where you can see what this theology does to people. We were both profoundly damaged for a period of time. And I love that you're saying that you don't hold animosity and you've worked so hard to mend those relationships and get to a place where there is an authentic love and understanding between you and your family. And that just speaks volumes to who you are as a person, the tender love and care in which you wrote Wayward the respect in which you've given faith. This is not a book where you're just like poo-pooing everything about religion. There's still so much respect and, and love and grace that you give to people that shines through. And it's a beautiful testimony. Sorry to use a potentially <laughs> triggering word. That's okay. <laughs> but, you know, there's so many that. lessons to be gleaned about indoctrination and what we what we should not be doing to our young people and to each other in this experience of life so again thank you so much for just laying it all out so beautifully and and taking the time to uproot this experience so that you and your family can look at it and also welcoming the world to look at it so thank you Oh, thank you for appreciating it. <laughs> of course. <laughs> no, and I'm, I'm so, so grateful to you as well for writing your story and for many reasons. A, for my own personal reasons, just because like a lot of the deep things I can, I so relate with you on, um, but a lot of the, the, the fluffier things too, like West Side Girls versus East Side Girls <laughs> in LA, yeah. like it was such, such a nostalgic trip down memory lane. Like I remember my first time at the Playboy Mansion and like, ah. it, like it's so, it's so, it was so fun to like revisit Hollywood um through your eyes and remember oh yeah mid late 2000s like early 2000s like like just the, you you so captured the LA scene like and a very specific um uh I like I'm I'm living on the east side now for the first time in my 18 year LA residence like I've never been an east side oh girl. we have to hang out and I'm a forever east side girl yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's so it's like and I know it's changed a lot from what I've heard in the past few years especially but you really nailed um, especially in Hollywood, which is kind of like in between, like East Hollywood, like you mentioned Senespia and like, like all these things. I was like, oh my God, I feel like we must have crossed paths at some point. Like if we, if we could go back in time and like, look at our, look at our GPS locator dots on the map, I'm sure we were like right by each other, like so many times. Like, and I just, I love that. And I also love, um, because people, Jamie Lee Finch, uh, specifically, but but a lot of other people too have com have compared our books in ways that I'm extremely flattered by, and I'm I'm really happy to 
um, recommend your book to people, uh, especially for people to whom faith or spirituality in some way, shape or form is still so important to them because my, I do find myself an atheist and I'm so grateful um, that I have the confidence now to live in my truth. And that just is my truth. And I no yeah. longer judge it. I no longer fear it. But I also am still deeply compassionate um, and sensitive to the fact that I know it's going to be alienating and scary to a lot of people who might want to read my book because maybe they relate to um, some of the harm of purity culture or evangelicalism, but maybe they're still Christian. And I'm so happy to be able to point them to your book, which deals with so many of the same themes. Um, but, but like you've said, like you've said, like we came, we arrived in different places, but can still have so much mutual understanding and support of each other. Because what I see at the crux of what you and I have in common, if I may, is that we both advocate for for people living in their truth, you know, and, and letting their truth and their ethics be guided by um, human goodness. And, and I think that that's, that's certainly at the heart of what I aim to do, whether it's through my book or through Dare to Doubt or anything else, is just to live for your truth and no one else's. And I so appreciate that you have this channel and that you've grown and cultivated this beautiful, diverse audience and that you've had so many diverse, beautiful guests um, that I'm just beginning to dip a toe into uh, myself, like watching your YouTube channel. And, and like, I so appreciate that you're holding space for these conversations and that you are not threatened by, by it and that you wouldn't encourage other people to be threatened by it. And I, I really am again, just so grateful for this chance to speak with you and, and that I got Vice to speak versa. <laughs> This is awesome. I love it. And I just, yeah, we'll end the conversation in a second, but I thought it was very beautiful too. Cause when you reached out to me, I will still have my little ego immediate reaction where I saw you were, you were like, I wrote a purity culture book too. And my immediate reaction was like, no, like there can't be another one at the same time. And then it was just so funny. Cause that's always, I love listening to Dak Shepard's podcast. Um, armchair expert, love it so mm -hmm. much. Um, but he always like calls himself a piece of shit, which I would disagree with on him. But, um, he's always like, I'll have five shitty thoughts. And then the sixth one will be like what I should do and what I act upon. <laughs> so my first like <laughs> shitty thought was like, no, not a purity culture book. Like it's going to be competitive. <laughs> and then of course I read it and it's so different. And, and at the same time, like to me, it's so divine because I was like, oh, this is what people need healing this aspect. And they just beautifully play into each other as like we've said a million times, our beautiful mutual friend, Jamie has pointed out. And um, yeah, so please pick up both of these books. I know yes. so many of you have on her knees. If you don't have it yet, please go get Wayward. And that's it. We love you all so much. I will link all of Alice's information below. We love you all so much. God bless. Thank you.